Praise the Lord, everybody. Hopefully you can hear me. I don't even know if you can hear me, but hopefully you can hear me. We've been having all kinds of uh, problems. It's, it's, it seems that our Apple software and our streaming software over the night had a fight, and the streaming software lost. So we were trying to get this fixed this morning. Uh, I wasn't aware of the fight. So I have sent them both to their rooms so that they're now separated from each other. So just pray for us as we work through this. But we're excited about what God is doing today. I'm not going to share the entirety of my sermon with you. Uh, I appreciate those that have been hanging out and watching us try to figure out how to get this set back up so that you could see it. Um, we definitely appreciate that. But we have a really um, wonderful thing that we're doing today here in the studio, and that is the dedication of... Um, a, a young baby that is being uh, given back to God. We understand that babies are a gift from God to us, and we're dedicating the life of uh, Landon Tyler Gregory back to the Lord. And we're excited about that, and we don't want to um, belay all the, the time for those that are in the studio. But I do just want to start uh, today's sermon for you because there's, there's a lot in it. There's a lot to unpack, so I'll get back to it again next week um, unless I am uh, on the road again. Um, but at some point here in the near future, I promise I'll get back to it. Praise the Lord to everybody in the studio. It's good to see each and every one of you. Hello, Landon. How are you? Landon's looking at me like, I don't know where I am. Amen. But we thank the Lord again for each and every one of you. Uh, you can go by, um, if you're going to use a title, if you want to use something to reference today's sermon, you can um, use this thought. We are more than priests. We are more than priests. And I believe that there is a lot that the Word of God has shared with us. And like sometimes what we do, we hold on to one thing or one aspect of it, and we miss so much that God is trying to release because we fixated on just one thing. Uh, we, in a sense, get tunnel vision. If you've ever been in a uh, car accident and uh, you kind of saw it coming, you were fixated on what was getting ready to happen and never had the opportunity in your current state to see the avenues for escape to avoid what was getting ready to happen because you had tunnel vision and you were fixated on the, the crash that was about to take place. It's kind of the best way that I could explain it to you. Or um, unfortunately in our society, many people um, have had the unfortunate um, uh, experience to have a, a, a gun thrust in their face. Everyone will tell you that if you ask them to describe the gun, it was, oh, it was this huge thing because that's all they could see was that gun, rightfully so. But again, they got tunnel vision and fixated on that one thing. They can tell you everything about the gun, but they can't tell you anything about who was actually holding the gun. 
that's tunnel vision. We in the body of Christ have a unfortunate tendency to um, have tunnel vision when it comes to the word of God. And we miss so much that's in there that he wants us to understand. Let me just share with you that the fastest rising crime in the world today is identity theft. Um, maybe some of you listening today have been affected by it. Um, you can see this identity theft in minor things that don't really cost you anything, like on Facebook, where they hack your profile, and then all the people on your friends list gets some crazy um, text or you know solicitation for money or whatever. Um, to the extreme, where they actually steal the fullness of your identity, and it does affect you. We understand that uh, in today's society, there are over 10 million people constantly affected by identity theft, and it's costing in the upwards of $5 billion annually, and it's just rising, and that's just in America by itself. Now, the truth of the matter is there has been an identity theft that has gone on for several centuries uh, in the church, and the church itself has yet to recover from it. Now, we know from the book of John, the 10th chapter and the 10th verse, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now, perhaps his greatest tactic is that he has stolen the spiritual identity of the church. Revelations, the first chapter, the fourth through the sixth verse says this, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. Now, if you're following along, I want you to underline kings and priests. Underline that phrase. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, reading this, we can see that Jesus bought and paid for rulership. His sacrifice made us kings as well as priests. Now, he is the one with ultimate dominion. It was bought and paid for by the three days and the three nights in the belly of the earth where he forcibly removes all authority from our enemy and from the kingdom of darkness upon his resurrection. Now, being a king is a very specific assignment. Now, I want you to understand that there is a difference between being a king and being a priest, yet scripture declares we are both king and priest. And I want you to follow along with me because being a king, again, is very specific. It's a specific assignment. And that assignment demands not only jurisdiction, but also requires different levels of authority. Now, from the Great Commission, we read in Matthew 28 and 18 uh, through 20, we know that jurisdiction is settled once and for all through this statement that was made. Then Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, circle authority, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, 
The Great Commission settles the issue of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the place where authority is exercised. Authority is the ability and the right to carry out tasks and jurisdiction is the location in which you are given to carry out the task you have been authorized to carry out. So anywhere you go on assignment from heaven, anywhere your foot treads, you carry as a New Testament uh, covenant believer ultimate jurisdiction that extends to you from the throne room. Now, the problem with having jurisdiction is that you also have to have corresponding authority to enforce law in that jurisdiction in which you, are, you find yourself. So we may have spiritual jurisdiction, but if we are in a territory where the enemy has been granted authority, then the conflict rages and jurisdiction alone will not necessarily win out. Paul addresses this very issue in the book of Ephesians in the first chapter, the 15th through the 23rd verse, in a prayer for revelation of the different levels of authority that we might need to access in our assigned jurisdiction. The word of God declares, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So without revelation of the authority to match the assignment in your jurisdiction, then you're going to find yourself in a boatload of trouble. We are in a season of restoration, and we can expect in this season a full measure of God-given authority at every level to be restored in order for the end time harvest that the word talks about. It's not the harvest that's lacking. It is the laborers. So we have this ability through uh, multiple levels of authority that's been restored in us so that the end time harvest can be procured by the laborers. So the real question then is uh, the, you know, kind of revolves around the initial phase of our restoration and how is it that we uh, function in this restoration? How is this restoration, um, you know, processed out and what do we gain or what do we lose in this restoration? Is our kingly authority lost in this restoration in lieu of our priestly authority and, and this is something we need to think about because the the answer really is very simple as it you know pertains to the priestly ministry the priestly ministry has become overemphasized now receiving mercy for salvation qualifies us to extend that same mercy to others 
Our experience then becomes the qualification. Jesus made us kings, but we do what we do and we go where we go through experience. The fivefold ministry of Ephesians 4 and 11 has the responsibility of building this into the church that will, ex that will stand in the last days. Now, if we look at 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter and the 4th verse uh, through the 5th verse, it reveals what the job of a king is. And we have to understand uh, what the job of a king is. Uh, we understand that priests deal with salvation. But there's something specific that God wants us to recognize in our kingship that goes along with and works with our priestly duty. We are told in uh, 1 Samuel, that, uh, actually, let me just read it to you. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. You're talking about being up front and, you know, <laughs> they were pretty much point to blank. They weren't beating around any bushes. You are old and your sons don't walk in the way. Now make for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now I want you to circle that word judge. Make us a king, that's identifying the specific person, and what is the king's assignment? The king's assignment is to judge. So the primary job of a king was to judge the people. Now understand this, priests bring salvation. Kings bring justice. I want you to, if, if, if you're going to do a Facebook quote, quote that. Priests bring salvation. Kings bring justice. So the church, through the lack of knowledge, has forfeited, not entirely, but a very strong part of its kingly call. Now, when we don't know what we can't do, it becomes a problem. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. So our teaching has emphasized priestly ministry and consequently diminished our kingly authority. In 1 Kings, the third chapter, um, Solomon is uh, presented with the problem of two women. Uh, some of you may remember this story. Both of these women are claiming to have a living son. It's the same son. Now, each woman had a son, but one of the women's son died, died in the middle of the night. Now the woman whose son died placed her dead son in the arms of the other woman while that woman was sleeping and took that woman's living son as her own. Now Solomon hears the claim and he uh, brings about a counterclaim and he proclaims in 1 Kings 3, 23 through 27, uh, the one says, this is my son who lives. And your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one. And my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the, the living child into two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king because she earnestly had compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other woman said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. 
Now, this is really interesting uh, when you look at this passage and uh, you kind of correlate what's going on here. And what is interesting about this passage is how Israel responded to Solomon's unusual display of divine wisdom. Verse 28 declares, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So the job of a king is to administer justice, the justice of God in the judgments that are made. The job of a priest is to bring salvation to the people. Now most of us have spent our lives developing the priestly side of ministry and have paid little or no attention to the kingly side. Now, by emphasizing Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. I'm sure many of you have heard this, especially if you're standing in judgment over uh, a, a person and their behavior. They'll tell you, ah, the Bible says judge not that you be not judged without, you know, setting that very statement in its proper context. And by doing that, we have eroded the foundation of the kingly ministry. If we had been present to hear Jesus, we could have caught the cadence of his message, which completely changes the application of judge, not that you uh, be not judged. So the cadence of Jesus' message begins in Matthew, the sixth chapter in the first verse, where he says, give, but don't give like the hypocrites. In verse five, he says, pray, but don't pray like the hypocrites. In verse 16, he says, fast, but don't fast like the hypocrites. And by the time we get all the way over to Matthew, the seventh chapter in the first verse, we would have understood that judge in the same cadence with Christ really means, but don't judge like the hypocrites. Not to not judge, but don't judge like the hypocrites. Keeping things within context in the situation in which it was uh, you know, stated. So kings then have the primary assignment of asserting God's dominion by judging because their job is to bring the justice of God into every situation where injustice arises. Now we have equipped the church, that's everybody in the body of Christ, to be priests who, uh, you know, capably minister salvation, but we have utterly failed in preparing the church, that's everybody in the body, to bring forth the justice of God. And as injustice arises, the kingly assignment grows more and more in importance. Now, there are pockets of people who can never be reached with a priestly message until a kingly judicial manifestation opens the door. The Apostle Paul found himself in just such a place in the book of Acts, the 13th chapter, when he faced a false prophet. Kings administer justice. Remember this. Priests administer salvation. Here's the key. We are called to do both. The first thing that we need to realize about the Lord Jesus is that he was both priest and king. And his priestly ministry is seen in the Gospels, while his kingly ministry is seen after in the resurrection. In Matthew 10 and 8, Jesus is very priestly. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. 
Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus imparts an anointing, lights the candlestick of the, of the 12 disciples and sends them off to minister in the power of the Holy Ghost. But in Revelation chapter 2, 4 through 5, speaking to the church at Ephesus, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now remember, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In the Gospels, Jesus lit their candlestick as a priest. In Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus, he said, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. Removing the candlestick is not a priestly action. It is the prerogative of a king. In John chapter 8, 1 through 11, Jesus ministers to a woman who is caught in adultery. And he says, uh, you know, what he says in a very, very priestly manner. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But in Revelations chapter 2, 20 through 22, addressing the church at Thyatira, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent for their deeds. So in the Gospels, as a priest, Jesus forgives the woman caught in the act of adultery. In Revelations 2, as the judge of all the earth, he commands those in the church of Thyatira to repent or else they are going to be thrown into great tribulation. Once Jesus ascended, he became the judge of all the earth, starting with the church. We cannot faithfully represent Jesus the judge if we only know Jesus the Savior. In 1 Peter 2, 18 through 24, we are told servants, be submissive to your masters. And a lot of people don't like this, this passage. They, uh, they'll skip right over it. Uh, but it says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So while Peter is very, 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 very priestly, 
And he warns us that when we are reviled, not to revile in return. And when we suffer, not to threaten, but to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. In Acts 5 and 1, 3, or or there rather, he uh, transitions from a priestly role quickly into a kingly role. And he announces the death of Ananias and Sapphira. They fall at his feet, dead. Now, how is it that he can exhort us to be priestly and then turn around in Acts 5, transition into another man, acting like the judge of all the earth in declaring the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and then they fall dead at his feet? You see, when facing insidious sin, threatening the young church, Peter brought throne room justice. The judgment seat of Christ was manifest at Peter's feet. Now, those of us in ministry are responsible for the condition of the church. And by emphasizing only Jesus the Savior, we have hidden Jesus the judge. Jesus the judge delivered the early church from mammon by removing the carrier of the mammon. As uh, ministers, it becomes our function then to prepare the church to attempt to save the carriers instead of by faith removing them. Jesus in Revelation kills in order to save. Do we know who Jesus really is? Month after month and year after year, we continue to lose our nation generation after generation. Freedoms uh, that our forefathers died for are now gone. The, uh, they've been sacrificed. Uh, the, the, the things that we have prayed for and, and, and labored for and fasted for, uh, they've been uh, removed. We... If if you look at it, when we think about mercy, the mercy that we've prayed for, it has enabled judges who are renegade in righteousness to continue sitting on the bench and stealing our very heritage. There is little fear of God in the church and there's no fear of God in government. And that will only change when the church represents Jesus, the judge. God consistently saved by removing the enemy in an answer to prayer. We have covenant access to a judicial throne and we must learn to use it. Hallelujah. I hear you, Landon. Landon just told me that that was my time right there for this morning because we got other stuff to do. But I want you to tune back in because I want to show you how you can use the kingly jurisdiction and authority that you've been given in cooperation with the priestly jurisdiction and uh, authority that you've been given so that you can rightly do and exercise and um, you know your visage carry out the fullness of who God is so I encourage you to tune back in uh, next week. Again, if, uh, if I'm out of town, we'll, we'll put a blurb out there to let you know we're out of town. But um, just know that there is so much more to us in the body of Christ that exceeds just being priestly. We are also called to be kings. God bless you. You have a wonderful Sunday.